You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I spent a good part of my weekend being really, really angry about the representation of sexual minorities in contemporary film. We watched this new thriller over the weekend about a woman who basically kidnaps elderly people by gaming the legal guardianship system and then holds these elderly people against their will in a crappy long-term care facility. She prevents them from seeing their families. She strips them of their assets, condemns them to lonely and miserable deaths. Clearly, it's not just Brittany who needs to be freed, people. And the lead in this film, the villain, is a lesbian with a severe haircut and a thing for expensive stiletto heels. Her girlfriend is her accomplice. And between them, they don't have a scrap of a scruple. No conscience, no remorse about what they're doing. They are sociopaths. Two greedy fucking dykes who don't care who they hurt or how many lives they destroy. They're monstrous. And I loved it. I fucking loved it. It's called I Care A Lot. It's streaming on Netflix. Directed by Jay Blakeson. It stars Rosamund Pike and Isa Gonzalez as the horrible lesbians. Peter Dinklage is in it. He's amazing. And two-time Academy Award winner Diane Weist is in it, one of my favorite actresses. She won both those awards for roles in Woody Allen films. I don't know if she's supposed to return them now or what, but I love her and she's amazing in everything. And I hope she gets another Academy Award for this performance, one that won't have the stank of Woody Allen all over it. Again, this film is called I Care A Lot. Streaming on Netflix, definitely worth your time. All right, what was I saying when I started? Oh, right. I spent a good part of my weekend really angry about the representation of sexual minorities in contemporary film. But it wasn't the movie about the evil lesbian couple that pissed me off. Actually, I don't know if Marla and Fran, that's the evil couple in this movie. I don't know what their relationship histories are or even how they identify. So they could be evil bisexuals. Don't want to accidentally do some of that bisexual erasure thing here. But this film is proof of how far we've come since Basic Instinct, the 1992 thriller starring Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone about a sociopathic lesbian murderer, or possibly bisexual murderer, a film that led to street protests. The shoot was disrupted. The premiere was picketed by angry lesbians and bisexual women. And there have been no protests, none that I'm aware of, of I Care A Lot with its evil lesbian and or bisexual leads. And I think that's because we've reached a place where those of us who are queer, gay, bisexual, lesbian, trans, see ourselves represented in film and in television in our full diversity and complexity. When there were fewer portrayals of us on film or on television, each single portrayal was scrutinized closely because it might be the only lesbian or gay man or bisexual person or the only trans person that that viewer of that film or or TV show might ever meet. And if every queer person the general public saw on TV or in movies was a murderer, and that's pretty much how it went for decades, that shaped how people felt about their gay or lesbian family members or neighbors or employees. It had consequences for us. But now we've got actual lesbians who are just themselves on TV. We've got our Rachels and our Ellens and enough fictional portrayals of gays and lesbians and bisexuals and same-sex couples in film and on television that we can relax about the occasional lesbian sociopath serial killer couple or bisexual sociopath serial killer couple. We see you, bisociopaths. You are valid. We can relax about a lesbian sociopath in a film because 
that one part, that one character is balanced out by all the lesbian moms on the Fosters and the gay ballet dancers on Tiny Pretty Things and the buys in space on Star Trek Picard. Okay. So there was this movie that pissed me off this weekend and it wasn't that one. It wasn't the one I just talked about. There is no I in threesome. It's a documentary about an opposite sex couple. Both partners identify as bisexual in an open relationship that becomes a poly relationship that becomes a messy relationship that becomes a failed relationship. Before I even pressed play, the title bothered me. There is no I in threesome. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Of course, there's an I in threesome. No letter I in threesome, duh. But in every threesome, there are three individuals whose needs, desires, and feelings have to be balanced and who would obviously use the first person singular nominative case personal pronoun I when referring to themselves when making those very important I statements before the threesome could even get started. There is no I in threesome. Okay, documentary about a couple exploring polyamory. They use the word monogamish. They use my word in the first 10 minutes. And the star of the film, who's also the filmmaker, repeatedly describes openness, opening the relationship, as having your cake and eating it too. They establish rules and immediately break them. She catches feelings for someone else. And after 90 interminable minutes, we're told, we're informed, that you can't actually have your cake and eat it too. Meaning you can have commitment and stability or you can have variety and novelty, but you can't have both. Love, we learn from the most prominent film about polyamory and open relationships to roll out in years. Love, this film tells us, is a zero-sum game. Can't be in love with more than one person romantically at a time. And if you attempt it, you will literally fall on your face over and over which is how the film ends with the lead, the star, the filmmaker, Mr. Having and Eating Cake, literally falling on his face over and over and over again. That is the takeaway, and it pissed me off. As a member of this community, I was really pissed. Now, I'm not suggesting that all portrayals of poly, open, or monogamous relationships have to be positive, just as I'm not suggesting that lesbian characters can't be immoral sociopaths or bisexual characters, but just as it was a problem, when all lesbian, gay, and bi characters and trans characters were immoral sociopaths or serial killers, it is a problem right now that all portrayals of open or poly couples on television or in film are so cringe and always failures. I'm not impugning the motives of the filmmaker here. They were documenting their journey into polyamory and couldn't know at the start that it would end in shit. But it's telling that this film, this portrait, got a big splashy rollout on HBO Max. And I think that's because it tells monogamous people what they want to hear about people who aren't monogamous in the same way Basic Instinct told heterosexual people what they wanted to hear about lesbians in 1992. What it says to monogamous people, this film, is that you're doing it right and all those polyamorous people or people in open relationships, they're doing it wrong. What it says to monogamous people is your relationship might succeed, but their relationships doomed to certain failure. This is a film about polyamory pitched right at the prejudices of the monogamous folks out there, the prejudices of the dominant group. I don't think there should be protests, even though I was pissed off all weekend. Poly people can't exactly picket screenings when the film is streaming in people's homes. But like the lesbians who protested, picketed Basic Instinct back in 1992, I am sick and tired of being portrayed in this way. 
All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And joining us on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads on the Magnum. New York Times journalist and columnist Charles M. Blow is here to talk about his new book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. That's on the Magnum. Lots coming up on the micro, too, all on today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm calling with a sexy little sex success story. I really get off to the sounds of getting off, uh, panting, moaning, what sounds, etc. cetera. Uh, when I touch myself, I love listening to Sounds of Pleasure on Tumblr, which has clips submitted under alias of people pleasuring themselves or others. Um, one time I actually came just listening to a clip with no physical stimulation except for the gentle rumble of the seat of a car, but... And that's a story for another time. Anyway, um, I recently recorded an audio clip of me touching myself um, using my vibrator and actually moving through a pretty amazing orgasm, um, knowing that I was being recorded and that hundreds of people would be listening to me come was so hot and made me climax on the charter. I submitted it under an alias that I've always secretly loved but never used before. It was posted a few days later, and I saw my clip posted with all the other glorious orgasms happening all over the world. <laughs> I clicked on it, I listened to myself come, and I came. It was very meta. (laughs) Anyway, the whole process, start to finish, was very sexy and really brought the big O full circle. Um, I think I might create one or two more little contributions under this newly found identity. Um, And I guess as a suggestion to your listeners, um, if porn isn't really your thing, um, or if you're wanting to mix up the ways that you get a little riled up, um, try listening to audio clips. Audio clips of genuine orgasms submitted by willing and consenting adults. Mm, Orgasms. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing your success story. The sounds of pleasure on Tumblr. I am going to check that out. We like to start the show each week with something or someone that's working for one of our listeners before we get to what isn't working for our listeners. So if you have a success story that you want to share, send it in. Details about how to send it in at the end of the show. Hi, Dan. I have a question about like an etiquette situation I'm curious about. I have run into a situation I haven't encountered before, and it's that I have been going on a few like walk around like internet dates with people, and I started like seeing one person and feeling like kind of like interested in them. And it, it, you know, I, I went on a date with another person uh, who eventually came back to my house and I was feeling like not like they're a nice person and we get along great and, and stuff, but I'm just like not really feeling it uh, with them. But she and my roommate uh, who is a longtime friend of mine really hit it off really well. And like, we both felt like there were serious vibes between them. And I sort of want to just like say something to her, like you're great and stuff, but I'm not like super feeling it, but you and my friend should like hang out <laughs> basically but i don't know if if that's weird or if there's like a best way to go about that so i'm just curious about your perspective it is weird what you're thinking about doing fixing up this woman that you've been seeing with your roommate because you're not feeling it for her and they were clearly vibing the one time that they i hope safely and masked hung out together it is weird but it shouldn't be weird and wouldn't it be great If it wasn't weird, oddly enough, listening to your call, I was thinking about Miracle on 34th Street. And when Macy's didn't have the right roller skates, they referred a customer to gimbals and it generated all sorts of goodwill. It would be like that. But for dates, not roller skates. The issue for this woman 
is that it sounds like you and your roommate have talked about the fact that he clicked with her and is interested in her and you're comfortable with that and he's comfortable with that. You don't know for sure how she's feeling, whether the vibe was a romantic vibe that she had with your roommate or maybe she just clicked with him in a friendly way or maybe she's being friendly with him because she's interested in you and he's your roommate and your friend and and she wanted to make a good impression on you and so she leaned into it with him. But you don't know how she's feeling. And the danger here is when you call her to say, I'm not interested in you. We've hung out a little bit now and I've gotten to know you and what I now know for sure is I am not interested in you in the way I thought I might be when we first met. That's a rejection. And if she's not on the same page, if hearing that from you doesn't make her feel like she's been let off a hook potentially, it could hurt. And she may react badly to you then attempting this lateral pass, sending her off to your roommate But, you know, if you felt like they clicked and he felt like they clicked, maybe the safe high emotional IQ thing to do is just to tell her that you're not interested and thank her for her time and not say anything to her about her roommate and then let your roommate circle back with her after a couple of weeks. And who knows, if she's forthright or a listener of the Savage Lumpcast, maybe she felt the same way about your roommate, felt the same way about you that you felt about her, not into it with you, totally interested in your roommate. And we'll call him herself before those two weeks are up. Wish we lived in a world where this was more common. And I actually did something like this once. I met a guy. We we had sex. His kink portfolio, his kink bouquet wasn't exactly my kink bouquet portfolio. But I had a friend that I'd also hooked up with a few times. And I knew that they were kind of perfect for each other. And I let them both know that. And they were grateful for the referral Maybe this woman will be grateful for the referral. Maybe the referral and whatever she might have with your roommate will take the sting off the implicit rejection that you're handing her. But there's only one way to find out, and that's to make the referral. That's the riskier route. You could, of course, again, go the tell her you're not interested, thank her for her time route, and encourage your roommate to get in touch with her himself after she's had time to process the devastating loss of a future with you. Hey, Dan, I'm calling today to get your take on how I can get over something. You know, some background. Uh, I was sleeping with someone for a while. You know, the sex was really good and, uh, you know, it wasn't a love connection or anything like that, but um, it was fun while it lasted. And um, I knew it wasn't meant to be forever. So when he ended it and, you know, gave me the, it's not you, it's me and other platitude spiel, I was fine with it and, you know, kind of let it roll off my back. And we parted ways as friends, if not friends with benefits. But now there's a problem because I've since learned that he said all those things and he broke it off because he started sleeping with and subsequently dating one of my really close friends. And I'm pissed about it. I don't necessarily feel mad at her. She didn't know that we were sleeping together at the time. Uh, they, they're coworkers, so I didn't feel like it was appropriate to rock the boat. And I kind of kept her out of the loop on what was happening. But now it feels like there's this invisible rift between me and my friend. And I don't know. I, I was blindsided when she told me about it. Um, you know, them starting to see each other. I feel like I got retroactively played and I'm angry, but I don't want to be. I, I want to 
to get over this and I, I want to be able to spend time with my friend again without being so annoyed and uh, without her not understanding why I'm annoyed. I, I don't think I can talk to her about it because I, I don't want to ruin things between them or, or punish her because he was an ass. But I just don't know what to do. And so I would love your advice. Uh, if you know of any mantra I can repeat to myself to speed up the clock and be over it, I would really appreciate it. All right. My take. You were fucking this guy and the sex was really great, but you weren't into him. You weren't romantically interested in him. There was no long-term prospect there. It was, as you say, as you frame it uh, after the fact, a kind of friends with benefits situation. And he ended it and he gave you all the little white lies, the comforting little white lies that I think people ought to give. It's not you. It's me. It's you. It's not them. It's you. But who wants to hear that? You want that person who's dumping you or ending things, if it wasn't a relationship, just an arrangement, to demonstrate some, I don't know, at least ritualistic consideration and, and, and for your feelings. And one of the ways that we do that as we end something is to trot out those platitudes like it's not you, it's me, when it's very clearly you, not me. And it turns out, you found out after he ended it, that he ended it because he was sleeping with this other woman who coincidentally happens to be a friend of yours. And you're angry about this. And I think you're a little angrier than you, I don't want to say have a right to be, you have a right to feel your feelings, but it's not as if this guy met your friend through you while he was sleeping with you and started sleeping with her and kept you in the dark about that. They have a relationship. They are coworkers. They have a relationship, a connection, something that brought them into each other's orbit that predates you and this guy starting to fuck each other. They were coworkers. Maybe there had always been something there, a little attraction buzz that they had ignored. So they didn't want to complicate their work relationship and he was seeking sex elsewhere, but then they couldn't deny whatever it was they had and they started having sex together and it was awkward for him. He didn't know how to go to you and say, okay, I've started this thing. And it wasn't an exclusive relationship. It was friends with benefits. You were presumably free to sleep with other guys. Maybe you did sleep with other guys or you were open to pursuing something with another guy. If another guy came along that you were more interested in romantically and sexually than you were interested in this guy who was briefly and temporarily meeting your sexual needs. So in a way, and I think you know this, you're asking me to help you get over this because I think you know it's it's slightly irrational. And what would the other option have been? What should they have done? Should they have, because you and he had this connection and it was always going to be temporary, it's just about the sex, should they have never hooked up? Should they have taken a sort of, dual site-specific vow of celibacy just about each other for all eternity because you and this guy were hooking up for a while and only for a while with the understanding every time you hooked up that it might be the last time because it was just about the sex and not about anything else? Of course not. So what's the mantra? Well, I think the mantra right now is you telling yourself when you feel angry that it's awkward this guy that you were fucking is now with a friend and that's awkward and you're going to always have like slightly awkward feelings about it and that's okay. Of course, you're allowed to feel angry, but I don't think you have a right to feel angry. You have a right to feel supremely awkward about how this played out. And now that you know that 
what was going on behind the it's not you, it's me. Maybe there's information he could have shared with you at that moment, additional information about his interest in this person. And maybe he should have ended things with you before he began having sex with this woman. Maybe that would have been a way for him to show that kind of consideration for your feelings that you were owed considering, you know, even if there was no long-term romantic interest, there was certainly a rapport and a, a sexual interest and you would like to be treated kindly by people who get to put their penis in your vagina. That's not irrational. So maybe you express that anger to him a little bit and then make a conscious decision to let it go and to put yourself in their shoes. If there was something there that wasn't just about sex between them, that was potentially something more, if you were the friend, the coworker in that situation, wouldn't you do what they've done? Wouldn't you have pursued it even if it was awkward, even if it caused someone else some pain in how it all tumbled out, how the news all tumbled out in the end? Probably the course of true love ne'er did run smooth. And it sucks to be the bump in somebody else's road toward true love. But we all have to play that part every once in a while. You got to play this part now. Feel your feelings. Have your anger. Say your peace. Then make a conscious decision to let it go. And I know that that mantra is a little played out because of that Disney movie. But you can just say to yourself, let it go, let it go, let it go. And you can remind yourself, after saying, let it go, let it go, let it go, that your anger is a little irrational because these two people who are into each other couldn't be expected to never act on that for all eternity because you got to his dick first and you were her friend first. And maybe it would help with your anger, help you get past it, if you could say to them both, if you could all get together and say, look, I'm happy for you guys. But you could have told me, turning to him, you could have told me instead of letting it tumble out. I didn't appreciate being blindsided. You could have told me. And then maybe he'll apologize to you sincerely in front of his new girlfriend, and that'll help. That'll help you let it go. Hello, Dan. A few months ago, I contracted chlamydia, and I did all the responsible things that you know I could think of to do. I let anybody know who could have contracted it. I, um, you know, got my tests and medication and follow-up tests and I'm totally clear now. But what I'm trying to figure out is if I have an obligation to tell my future partners that I once had chlamydia. No, no, you are not obligated to tell all of your future partners that you once had a curable sexually transmitted infection that you took care of and that you've been cured of and that they are not at risk of contracting from you? The answer is no. Hey there, Dan and team. I just listened to the most recent episode where you gave such sage advice to the lesbian who had really disturbed her girlfriend when she was rimming her. And it made me think of something that happens to me that I've always wondered about. And it's, it's like when I am fucking a guy and uh, very often getting beat and... <laughs> Then uh, the guy will kind of hop off and will suck my cock. And I've always wondered, is that fecal-free? You know, I, I know the guys that this has happened with you know, deep clean really well, and everything seems squeaky clean after, but I've just kind of wondered and been a little bit uh, wary about kissing them after just because of that whole 
is are the microscopic fecal matter bits in there or what? You can't get a dick in your mouth without getting your nose down by that dick first. These guys, these bottoms who clean themselves out before you fuck them and fuck them deep. If they want to suck your dick after you pull it out of their ass, let them. If there's a problem, if it's not clean, you may notice. They may certainly notice before they suck your dick. And then you can pivot to the shower or grab the cum towel or whatever, but I guarantee you that 99.99999999% of bottoms who will suck a dick after it comes out of their ass are not going to suck a dick that comes out of their ass with any perceptible fecal matter on it, with any noticeable through the visuals or noticeable through the scent fecal matter on that dick. It's not going to go in his mouth. Are there trace amounts of fecal matter? Yeah, but you know what science has shown us? There's pretty much trace amounts of fecal matter on everything. What's mostly on a guy's dick after he pulls it out of a squeaky clean, well-prepped, well-douched ass after even aggressive, passionate, deep, balls-deep anal, what's mostly, almost entirely on that guy's dick is lube and rectal mucus. And rectal mucus, I know, sounds gross, kind of a PR problem with that rectal before mucus. Actually, mucus isn't a great word either. But when you give somebody an aggressive, sloppy, wet blowjob, what's all over the dick when it comes out of your mouth or your throat? Mucus. And everyone's fine with that. Rectal mucus, pretty much the same stuff. So not pleasant to think about afterwards to unpack it and diagram it a little squicky, but in the moment, in that passionate moment, people do do that. ATM, ass to mouth. Another one of those things that perhaps porn popularized or normalized. The risks are low for the bottom. Of course, they are not non-existent. The risk for hepatitis, for E. coli. But if he's been down between your legs and sucking your dick, he's probably already been exposed to a little bit of your fecal matter anyway. And the risk for you kissing that guy after he sucks your dick, the risks for you presented by whatever is in your GI tract already, I'd say non-existent and not something that you need to worry about. So long as the dick comes out clean and if the guy is putting your dick in his mouth after it's been in his ass, that is a good sign that the dick indeed did come out clean. Hi, Dan. This is a 45-year-old female living in a small town in Ontario, Canada. I'm seeing a guy and we're in a friends with benefits kind of situation. He has a super high sex drive and is a kinkster. I'm not, but I'm trying to keep an open mind and just be open to trying new things, which I have. We have tried some bondage and some ball play with him, squeezing, tying them up. Um, tried pegging the last time he was here. It unfortunately didn't work because the strap-on dildo that he bought was uh, too big, 10-inch, uh, way too big, and was not able to handle it. So we're going to try something smaller the next time that I see him. And I'm totally fine with that. I'm open to it. Um, it's exciting to me. My problem is, is he wants to talk about it and text about it constantly. And that's all it is. And he's super obsessed with cock like super obsessed um he is bisexual hasn't had an experience yet but um definitely wants to wants me to be a part of it so we're looking at maybe doing a threesome 
I'm really nervous about it because I'm just I want it like I'm open-minded to it and I I want him to have the experience I just don't know how I feel about it I just part of me gets kind of wigged out by it and part of me is excited by it and I just don't know how to move forward with that so as far as he's concerned you know we're gonna move forward it might be something we do and I'm thinking well you might do it once and that would probably be it for me but I just I'm really nervous about it and I'm really getting turned off of the incessant talking about like just all of it it's and it's all focused on what is good for him I have a drawer in my house full of toys for him. We've bought, he's bought a pump now, like a cock pump. He's got a butt plug. He's got two dildos and there's nothing for me, like nothing. Like the last time I saw him, I had one orgasm, one. And I'm just like, what the hell? This is supposed to be mutual. So I'm just getting kind of turned off by it and I don't know what to do. I don't know if maybe we're just on different pages and it's not going to work? Or how do I say to him, like, hey, buddy, this isn't all just about you. And I'm kind of sick of the incessant talking about it all being about you. You have my permission to dump the selfish lover, the inconsiderate asshole. Well, asshole may be a little too much, but he's definitely inconsiderate. He's showing up at your place with all these toys for his own hole and for his own dick and not showing up at your place with any toys for you or asking you what toys that you already have that you might like used on you when he's around. He's not taking your pleasure into consideration. And he's also not taking your time into consideration if he's constantly blowing up your phones with dirty talk. He's really excited about being with someone. He thinks he's with somebody. He's not with somebody anymore because you're going to break up with him. He's really excited about being with someone who's into his kinks, but he's driving you, that person, away by obsessing about them, but not talking with you about anything else. And then when he shows up to have sex with you, not making sure that it's as pleasurable for you and you're getting as much out of it as he's getting, you're in the power position here. A girlfriend who is willing to peg you, a girlfriend who's into the fact that you are bi and would like to have a three-way with you where some other dude is going to shove his dick in your mouth or fuck your ass, that girlfriend isn't easy to find and he should take care to make sure that he's meeting your needs so that you can stick around or that you want to stick around and continue to meet his needs. And he's not doing that because I don't know. Because he doesn't know that he has to, perhaps because you haven't told him that you have expectations and that you have limits, including a limit to the number of texts you want to read from him on any given day about his hunger for cock and his obsession with cock. Could be that he's just never had this in his life before and he's a little too excited and a little too spun up and that he doesn't know and may not know because it doesn't sound like you've told him that he's annoying the shit out of you and is very likely going to drive you away if he can't rein it in and if he can't center your pleasure in the same way and to the same degree that you have centered his. My advice would be to end it. Sounds like that's what you want to do and I'm giving you permission to do what you want to do. When you tell him why you're ending it, and I don't think in this case that you should go with platitudes. I don't think you should, it's not you, it's me, him. I don't have time for a relationship right now. Don't do that. Tell him why. Tell him it's exhausting. You're exhausted. You feel used. You feel like 
dick matters more to him than you do and that you're not getting as much out of it pleasure-wise as he is. And it doesn't feel fair, mutual. There's no recip here. Where's the reciprocation? Where's the consideration? Tell him all that and dump him. Maybe he'll be a better partner the next time he finds a woman like you who can go to all the places that he wants to go and he'll demonstrate more consideration because he'll know because he got burned last time for not doing those things that he's got to do those things going forward. Or maybe he'll stumble into the life of a woman who is as obsessed with her boyfriend being obsessed with Dick as he's obsessed with Dick and he'll luck out. Or maybe he'll talk you into continuing to see him on the condition that he do better. And if he does better and you're into it, you do sound like you're a little into the idea of seeing your boyfriend suck a dick. If he does better and you're still into it and he course corrects, maybe you can keep seeing him. But I don't think that he's going to course correct, that he's going to realize the degree to which he needs to course correct without at the very least being dumped by you. Doesn't mean you can't take him back, but he needs to go through the being dumped before he can become the kind of guy you want to be with at all, much less considered taken back. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight man, and I've been in a relationship uh, with my girlfriend for about three and a half years. I feel like our, our, our sex drivers is about, is about the same as much, as much as you can. But when it comes to just generically talking in my life, I tend to really dig into subject, regardless of what it is, whether, whether that be robotics or real estate or... <laughs> or anything, I, I really tend to dig in. And it's been hard to do that with sex with my girlfriend. And, and it, it, it's just, it's, it's very surface level. And I don't really know what I'm doing wrong, because I feel like our communication is pretty decent in other aspects. It's just when it comes to sex, it's just very surface level. And I don't, I don't really know how to, uh, I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'm just, I'm just looking for another perspective just to maybe break that glass. Some people have a hard time talking about sex, even talking about sex with their partners. Some people have more difficulty talking about sex with their sex partners. And some people have yet more difficulty talking about sex, not just with their sex partners, but with their long-term committed romantic partners. We live in a deeply sex negative culture, but also the stakes are high. Talking about sex with somebody that you have sex with, that you're in a relationship with, and that you're in a sexually exclusive relationship with. So the sex kind of has to work for the relationship to continue. And if the sex isn't working or there's this feeling that somebody's dissatisfied or you're not on the same page, directly addressing that can imperil the relationship and everything about the relationship that a person values that's not about the sex, not the sex parts of the relationship. Everything else that's working in the relationship can be threatened if you take a close, hard look at the sex and want to have that conversation about sex, particularly if you are unhappy with some aspects of your sex life or she is unhappy with some aspects of your sex life and she fears opening up about that. So what do you do? Well, three and a half years into this relationship, you're calling my show to ask for help here. How do you break through the surface? You pick up a rock and you throw it into the middle of that frozen lake and you shatter the surface. You have to take that risk. It could mean risking the relationship. I wish you had been a little bit more specific about what it is about your sexual relationship or your inability to talk about the sex that's causing you this angst and making you wonder about the longevity of the relationship. 
You know, if the sex was working and you loved it and you got the impression that it was working for her and she loved it and you never talked about it, it wouldn't be a problem. So I suspect that something's not working, that you are dissatisfied in some way and you are afraid to unpack that for her. You're afraid to to say that out loud. Maybe you don't want to hurt her feelings. Maybe you don't want to risk the relationship. Maybe some combo platter of both. Sometimes people attempt to address these things and their partner freaks out and has a meltdown and cries. And basically that makes it impossible to raise the subject again without, in a way, saying to your partner, I'm willing to risk upsetting you, hurting your feelings and making you cry by bringing this up again. It can be, I don't think it's always an intentional kind of hostage taking with tears, but it can in the end function that way. We can't have these conversations because it so upsets my partner And so we don't have these conversations and so this thing is never resolved and the problem grows and grows and then resentment and frustration kick in and becomes a cancer that eats away at the relationship until it collapses. Really, sex has got to work. It doesn't mean two people get everything sexually out of each other, out of the relationship that they might want. It also doesn't mean that sex has to be a part of the relationship. Sex doesn't have to be a part of a good, companionate, loving, stable, committed relationship. But if there's not sex in a sexually exclusive relationship, that has to work for both people. If it doesn't, the relationship not going to work. So whatever it is that you want to talk to her about, you're going to have to just risk having that conversation. It's hard to have face-to-face if when you've tried to raise the subject in the past, she's gotten very upset in a way that disincentivizes ever raising that subject again. Write it all down. Write it all down on a piece of paper if you don't want to risk putting it in an email that may get lost or misdirected. Write it all down and give it to her. And then you're going to have to have the conversation. You're not going to be able to avoid the conversation. That's how you break through, not really a a surface, but the wall that has been erected between you two. And sometimes that's one person putting up a wall. And sometimes it's the two people who build that wall together because they're afraid to address what isn't working about the relationship because they so value everything else that is working about the relationship. So they avoid the subject, whatever that subject might be. Usually sex, almost always sex when it comes up on this show, sometimes finances, sometimes kids, sometimes faith, sometimes politics, whatever. Some conflicts, some issues can be finessed. Sex in a sexually exclusive relationship, that can't be finessed, has to be addressed. How do you do it? Well, sounds glib. You do it by doing it. How do you say what it is you need to say? How do you break through that surface? You fucking say it. And then the surface is shattered. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with the author of a new book. This topic is going to seem a little outside our wheelhouse, but not too far outside it. I think we touch on these issues a lot on the show, and I think the topic is really important. Charles M. Blow is an acclaimed journalist and op-ed columnist for the New York Times who appears frequently on CNN. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. His new book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto, just came out from HarperCollins. Hey, Charles Blow, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Or, or back on the show, I, I should say, uh, once long ago, you recorded a rant about Ted Cruz and posted it to Twitter. And it was so beautiful that I asked you if I could just play that as the opening of my show when you agreed. And that Ted Cruz person, <laughs> no one's ever heard from him again. So good job. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, congrats on the, the new book. Um, and you're rolling out a really big idea here, reversing the great 
Migration. Uh, let's start there. I'm sure some of my listeners aren't familiar with what the Great Migration was. What was it? So the Great Migration uh, was actually two uh, came in two waves. It was the moving of black people, migration of black people out of the rural South to a large degree to uh, urban uh, cities and areas in the North and West. This happened from about 1916 to about uh, 1970. The waves roughly correspond, at least the beginning of those waves, roughly correspond to the First and Second World Wars. So I grew up in one of, you call them one of the destination cities, Mm -hmm. uh, Chicago. And the Great Migration was always talked about as this unalloyed good. Kind of like a, a sequel to the Underground Railroad, but it was an elevated train this time, nothing hidden. And instead of fleeing slavery, uh, people were fleeing Jim Crow. Um, but you don't see the Great Migration, at least the long-term consequences of it, as a an unalloyed good for black people in the United States. Right. Well, we, we have to remember that when the Red Summer, which was they named the Red Summer, summer because there were uh, a, um, anti-black white, violent mob riots in cities across America in the summer of uh, 1919. And in th- one of those was in Chicago. And when the officials of Chicago uh, uh, got together a commission to look into the reasons for that, it was a response of white people to the Great Migration. So, I mean, this idea that it was an analog good, like, that, that everything about it was good, that there was no massive white backlash to it is simply not true in fact the one case uh the 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 case that allows for racial covenants to exist actually comes out of chicago this is uh the the first case that sets it up this is not the original case but the case that sets it up is actually lorraine lorraine hansberry's family is a party to that case and then the next case uh, is what establishes these racial covenants. Racial covenants was when you could write into the the property deed or whatever that you they could not be sold or even occupied by anyone who was black. Uh, and at the height of those racial covenants, majority of lands in Chicago were covered by racial covenants. Black people just simply could, were, were were forbidden by law from even living in or buying those spaces. That comes out of Chicago. I remember growing up and experiencing some cognitive dissonance around that because I would he- learn about the Great Migration as this uh, event where African Americans left for places like Chicago to escape racism. And yet I was acutely aware that the city I was growing up in was a deeply, deeply racist place. And I remember the first time I – that really dawned on me. I was a very small child. Uh, the Chicago Catholic Schools – integrated and established a busing program before the Chicago public schools did. And we were going to Catholic schools on the street and it didn't have a lunchroom. So we all went home for lunch. And my parents sponsored three African-American kids who were being bused into our Catholic school to come home to our house for lunch. And the neighbor across the alley pointed a shotgun at my mother. And it was the first time I heard the N word as I was six, five and the full venom of it registered with me. Then and yet, as a little white kid growing up in Chicago and you know being fed this narrative about the Great Migration and the Civil Rights Movement, that it, it just I, I couldn't reconcile those you know what I was seeing with what I was being told. Yeah, it it was hard for a lot of people, including Martin Luther King. You know, after 
uh, some people don't recognize or remember this or realize it, is that after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, one year before he was actually assassinated, Martin Luther King moves to Chicago. And he is there to uh, advance uh, his fair housing campaign. And many of the very same senators, northern, midwestern uh, senators who had voted for the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act were completely against the idea of fair housing. As Moynihan put it at the time, fair housing was bringing civil rights to the neighborhoods. It wasn't no, no longer about Jim Crow. It was no longer about Bull Connor. And, the, and when people have to reckon with racial inclusion up close, you see their true colors. And what Martin Luther King realized was, was the venom against him and black people uh, uh, having the opportunity to live side by side with white people in Chicago, when they would show up to do, you know, to march in Selma or wherever, a couple hundred racists or Klansmen or whatever would show up to counter protest. When they tried to march in Chicago, thousands of white people showed up and they picked up and threw everything they could get their hands on. Martin Luther King is knocked to the ground that day. I think by a bottle or something. And he later says, of all the things he had encountered, this is one year before he dies, all the marches, he had never seen anything as vicious as what he had seen in Chicago that day. So unpack the the proposition mm-hmm. from the book. Your, your proposal, your radical proposal is to reverse the Great Migration. And you describe it as a path to black power. What is it that the African-Americans, the black people in America that you're addressing with this book, what are you asking them to do? So at the end of the Civil War, three southern states, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, were majority black. Three other southern states were within four percentage points of being majority black. Every southern state had large percentages of black people in them. If black people had not migrated, and I understand why they did, and if the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act had still passed, and that's a big if, Black people could today control up to 14 Senate seats. Uh, They could today control more electoral college votes in California and New York State combined. Uh, If if Hillary Clinton had simply won the southern states, which she won in the primary, those with large black populations, she could have lost every single one of the, the, the swing states in the Midwest and still been the president. Of the United States. If black people voted over that entire period the way that they vote now, there would not have been a Republican president in the last 50 years. And last I checked, I don't think there's a single person on the Supreme Court that was appointed over 50 years ago. So the entire Supreme Court would be different. So the Great Migration, you argue, diluted black power at the ballot box Absolutely. and in national Absolutely. elections. And you want to basically, you're suggesting, and you just moved from New York to Atlanta, Georgia yourself. So you're putting, you know, your money where your mouth is. You're suggesting that black power be reconstituted in these southern states. So black people return to the south. One of the only reasons that people left was white terror. They won that battle. They cannot be allowed to win the war. There's no reason that you're not where you are. In fact, you know, for, for the last 90 years, every state in the country except Hawaii has been majority white. That is not natural migration. That is... The pushing of Native Americans west off of lands that they had uh, they'd occupied, that is the terrorizing of black people out of the south, 
kind of displacement of uh, Hispanic people, which, which I guess you would just say Mex, Mex, uh, part of Mexican heritage in the West, it's not just natural migration, natural sediment uh, patterns that makes every state except Hawaii majority white. Who's the book for? You, you, you write that so much black energy, too much black energy gets poured into explaining to white liberals what black people already know as a matter of lived experience. There were times I was reading the book thinking – I'm, this is this chapter, this section is for the black reader. And there are times I was reading thinking, okay, this chapter is for me as the guilty white liberal. Well, I, 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 I'm glad that you believe that. <laughs> there's no chapter there for the guilty white liberal. So I, I, I just, I was literally trying to build an argument for young black people in that phase of their life when they could literally be anywhere. You know, the migrations are almost always dominated by young people, voluntary migrations. And so I am talking to those young people too, people who are just starting careers, people who, for whom they have not established family yet, uh, who have not necessarily brought, bought property yet. You can be anywhere. Consider the South. And one of the things that you argue very persuasively in the book is that this idea we have is of the South is this rapidly dangerous, violent, racist place, the stats, the current stats, contemporary stats don't necessarily bear that out. Black unemployment is higher in the North and the West in destination cities, great migration destination cities. Black incarceration rates higher uh, in the North and in the West and in destination cities than in the contemporary South. How is that argument going over? Have you heard from readers? Has anyone been inspired? Because it was, you know, the whole thing was undercover until publication date. So I'm, I have two weeks of responses. <laughs> so so I, 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 I've heard from some readers and no one, obje- no one objects to the notion that black power is necessary and that state power is important. People do have personal reservations as anyone would about migration if you've only ever lived in L.A. or Chicago or New York going somewhere that you don't know much about, maybe you have family, maybe you don't, is still a jolt to your life. And so people have questions about that part of it. Uh, But I always tell them, number one, when people engaged in the Great Migration in the first place, that was the same situation. 90% of black people lived in the South. Most people didn't know where they were going. They'd never seen snow. Many of them had never seen sidewalks. And they they left anyway before opportunities, the opportunity to have better economic conditions, but also the opportunity to be more free. And that and that that is the same pitch that I'm giving about the South, that, you know, there are twelve hundred majority black cities in America right now. Almost 90 percent of them are in the South. Maynard Jackson becomes the first mayor of a, of a major southern city in, in 1973 because uh, Atlanta becomes majority black in 1970. But since then, if you look around now, there's, it's hard to find. There are only a few ma- uh, major cities in the South that excludes Florida and Texas uh, st- states that I'm not uh, trying to convince people to move to that do not have black mayors. Like the, black power already exists. Uh, a fourth of the entire black population of America now lives under black municipal control. What do you think we would see nationally from the federal government if 
black people did control 18 Senate seats or 14 Senate seats, if black people, black voters, black power determined, uh, controlled more electoral college votes in California and New York combined, what do you think we would see out of the federal government? Well, you'd see a, a more responsive government uh, to black interests in, in the same way that you see a response uh, to white people and even a growing response to Hispanic interests because uh, in, in about 35 years, seven of the southwestern states will be majority Hispanic, not majority brown or minority or anything, majority Hispanic. And so you have to, when you realize that a constituency can control a state and deliver a state, you have to start producing policies specifically for that constituencies. Black people don't have that right now. They are not able to deliver a state on their own. When 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 black people became the majority of coalition here in Georgia to deliver the state for Joe Biden, it was the first time, at least since Reconstruction, I just don't have data on Reconstruction, at least since Reconstruction, that black people were the majority of the coalition to deliver a state for any candidate of any party. We always exist on the margins. When white people basically split their vote down the middle, they call in our 10, 5, 10, 15% to see if we can break the tie. That's not power. They only have to excite you around election time. They don't have to respond to your policies. If they did, in 2016, when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton, they would have responded to black people and said, okay, what, what can we do to get more black people to vote? They didn't do that. They We spent two years talking about economic anxiety among, among uh, working class white people. So – there was a racist backlash in the destination cities in the north to the great mm-hmm. migration. Could there be a racist backlash to a reverse migration? Sure, it could be. I uh, mean, it's almost inevitable that there would be. Like we're we're talking on the day of Trump's second impeachment trial, or one of the days of Trump's second impeachment trial. We've been witnessing a racist backlash for the last four fucking years, five years in this country. So. If African-Americans were moving back into Alabama or Mississippi in numbers enough to control who the senators from those states are, what sort of voter suppression efforts would that be met with? What sort of violence might that be met with? Uh, Any and all. Uh, What I'm proposing is a revolutionary act. Revolutionary acts never come without resistance or risk. That does not mean that they should not be undertaken. Can I ask you about the big sort Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a book that came out a few years ago that, that I read and it has really stuck with me. And one of its arguments was that uh, Bill Bishop wrote it. Liberals and, uh, were sort of clumping up in coastal states in California, Oregon, Washington, New York, um, mm-hmm. and diluting our political power. And we needed to, you know, if anything, move to a purple state. That was one of the pieces of advice that floated around after Donald Trump won the election in 2016. You want to do something? Move to a purple state. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that young people can live anywhere when they're making decisions about, you know, after college, about where they're going to settle down, where they're going to buy a house, start a business, um, you're in a position in your life where you could live anywhere and you've now chosen to to move back to the South, move to Atlanta. Right. And since the election, my husband and I have been arguing about moving out of Washington. We could live anywhere. And we've mm-hmm. talked about – we were literally, before I, I picked up and read your book, talking about moving to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, as white people, um, mm-hmm. to 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 you know, liberals, we're like wasting our vote here in Seattle. If we want to, as you know, good white liberal allies, support this black power revolution that you're proposing, should we move to Arizona instead? Should we stay out of the South? Where the should we scratch Atlanta from our list of potential contenders? 
No, I don't think that. But I do. I do want to um, stress that when I say black power, I'm not necessarily I'm not talking about political party power, Democrat or Republican, and I'm not, not talking about ideological power, liberal or conservative. I'm saying that black people's self determination and the ability to assert that is the is the the primary goal. White liberals could do a lot about relocating as well if they just want liberal policy. I personally am a black liberal, but not all black people share my the, the extent of my liberal uh, beliefs. I still believe that that after 400 years of living in a, a, a kind of a political subjugation where you've had no ability to call your own shots about your own leadership, that that is still worth doing, regardless of how it shakes out. Charles M. Blow journalist, op-ed columnist in New York Times. His new book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto, just published by HarperCollins. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you so much, Dave. Oh, and I want to say uh, real quickly before I let you go, I've recommended your memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, to so many of my listeners since that was published. And I've heard from so many people that it really helped them um, with their sexual orientations, their sexual identity. It really helped them conceptualize themselves in, in a new way because of what you shared about your own in that book. And I want to thank you for that on their behalf. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a mid-30s bi lady from the South. And my wife and I went out and made friends with a couple. We clicked right away, um, talked for hours, organically happened. And we hung out the next weekend. Again, just really enjoyed their company. And we we really liked them. We really get along with them. We did Google search the the husband uh, because he's a music a musician, and we found out that he was accused of molesting one of his teenage students. So we decided we aren't going to continue to communicate with these people. Um, we haven't made solid plans to continue hanging out with them, but we they, we have they have our number. They do reach out to us, but we aren't really sure if they do reach out again to hang out how to handle a situation. We can't decide if we should ghost them or confront them and, you know, say like, listen, we enjoyed your company, but we just can't unfortunately accept this um, part of your life and continue our friendship. So again, we're just not sure if we should ghost um, or maybe confront the situation and kind of end things solidly. But I, I don't agree with ghosting. I don't think it's a nice thing to do, whether it's to friends or dating, but we really just can't decide. And we really like these these folks and it's just too bad we can't continue a friendship. You roll out two options here to ghost this couple to ghost on them or to confront them about what you found when you Googled the husband. There's also the slowly withdraw option, which is when they reach out to you and they say they want to get together, you say you're busy right now or too busy right now. You're just unavailable. You make yourselves unavailable to them. They will get the message. They will stop reaching out to you. They will probably assume given what you found so easily on Google that you stumbled over that or went looking for that and you now know and they'll stop bothering you. They'll stop reaching out to you. I don't necessarily think that's the coward's way out, that kind of conflict avoidance strategy in a case like this. There's only so much conflict each of us can handle. And a confrontation invites a conflict. It is a conflict. And if you decide that this isn't conflict that you can handle right now or want to add to the pile of conflicts and confrontations that are already on your menu, already in your life, I think that can be a legitimate choice. You aren't obligated to confront. You aren't obligated 
to invite that kind of conflict. And if you don't want to be the kind of person who ghosts, then you can be the kind of person who slowly withdraws. The kind of person, the kind of couple that just suddenly isn't as available as they once were, they'll figure it out. They will probably know exactly what happened, exactly what you found out, and they will stop reaching out to you. Hey, Dan, I'm the tech savvy at Rescue. I'm calling you with a question about my brother. He has muscular dystrophy, and he's lived longer than most with his diagnosis. He lives in the Southeast with my parents, and he's voiced an interest in women many times in the past. But given his physical limitations and isolated living arrangements, he's unable to meet women in person. To make matters even more frustrating, he's no longer able to use his extremities, so I can only assume masturbation is not an option. In a post-COVID world, I'd love for him to be able to have a sexual experience. I feel like the best odds of making this happen will be with a willing and able sex worker. For context, my brother is a pretty open-minded person. The issue is that this would be an extremely awkward conversation for me to have, and I'm looking for some guidance about how and whether to even bring it up to him. Not to mention the question of legality of the matter in his home state. His disease has taken so many experiences from him, and I hate the thought of a kind and caring sexual encounter to be one of them. I'm really torn. You may never raise this subject with him, or you may hesitate to raise this subject with him because you don't want to make him feel awkward, and the subject is inherently awkward, and he may be hanging back, wanting to raise this subject with you and not raising it with you or hesitating to raise it with you because he doesn't want to make you feel awkward. And in the end, because neither of you raise the subject, he doesn't get to have these experiences, the experiences that could be available to him still, these pleasures, because you were worried about making it awkward for him. He was worried about making it awkward for you and years go by. You don't have to address this directly to make something possible, to provide your brother with an opportunity. Instead of having a conversation with him about whether he would like to see a sex worker, whether he'd like to have a hand job, you should have a conversation with him about whether he would like, whether it would be helpful for him to have a massage, to experience that kind of touch and physical contact. And then you can go find a body worker who does full release. And that kind of body worker is, of course, a sex worker, but it is a very low-grade kind of sex worker. Find a body worker who does full release. And then your brother can initiate that conversation when he is seeing this person for these massages, if he wishes to. You can let the body worker know that you've hired them to give your brother a massage. You know that they do full release body work. That means a hand job. But you haven't discussed that with your brother directly so that if they want to offer, if it feels like the right thing for them to do, they can negotiate in the room, in the moment, during these massages. Don't set your brother up for an uh, unconditional, sudden, surprising hand job. You're talking about massage therapists. You're talking about physical touch. You could mention that the massage therapist that you found for him does full release and then close your mouth. That's all your brother needs to know. And then he can raise the subject if that's something that he wants during the massage. If it's not something he wants during the massage, he doesn't have to raise the subject. If it's not something he wants at all, then he will shut this conversation down about you finding a massage therapist for him who does full release before there's a massage therapist in the room with him. So 
I guess what I'm telling you is instead of directly addressing it, hey, bro, want a hand job? Need a hand job? Probably. Let's make that happen. Hey, bro, do you need a massage? Would that help you feel better? Would that be good for your immune system and your health? I can make that happen. Let's set that up. I would like to do that for you. And who knows? Maybe in just addressing the massage therapy question, just massage and touch, he will raise this subject. Or maybe you guys will stumble into it and you can have a more honest conversation and a direct conversation about his sexual needs. But let him lead. What does he want? Offering to get him a massage therapist invites a conversation about what he needs and wants. See where it goes. He'd lucky to have you as a sister. Hey, Dan, heterosexual woman living on the East Coast. You've addressed this many times on the Lovecast, but I just need some reassurance from you and your listeners. I have one-year-old twins, and please, please, please tell me my sex drive is going to come back. I thought it was going to come back when I stopped breastfeeding, and it's just not there. I'm exhausted. It's a pandemic. I know you said yourself the first couple of years are really hard with kids. Plus, we've got two at the same time. But I would just love some reassurance that it's going to come back and we're going to have great sex and jump all over each other again. When a woman's breastfeeding, her estrogen levels drop. And that can lead to vaginal dryness, pain during intercourse, also just a lack of horniness or interest. And when you stop breastfeeding, when a woman weans, uh, estrogen levels begin to rise. And at a certain point, libido begins to slowly kick back in. But it takes time. Your infants are one year old. I assume that you only recently stopped breastfeeding. It's a good sign for the return and revival of your sex life with your husband that you're already wondering where it is, when you're going to be horny again. You're not horny, but you're horny for being horny. You're anxious about getting horny again. That's a very good sign. It will kick back in. It may take some time. Another contributing factor to cratering libidos when you have small children at home is exhaustion and you are exhausted. You've stopped breastfeeding, you've weaned your infants, you can cross that off the list, your estrogen levels are rising. It's going to take some time, particularly with twins, before you get enough rest to be interested in sex, before you're not so exhausted or not as exhausted as you are right now. So take a deep breath, be intimate with your partner enjoy their touch without any expectations of having to perform or having to knock one out and trust, trust your body. And I, again, it's such a good sign. So many people who are at the place you're at, even having stopped breastfeeding and exhausted with the new infants express no desire to experience desire. They're not horny for getting horny again. It's the last thing on their minds, even contemplating sex almost reinforces how turned off they are about sex and makes them feel less interested. It's a diminishing return. So again, I just want to emphasize for the millionth time, what a good sign it is that you're horny for getting horny again. I have full confidence that you will get horny again. You're just going to have to give it a little bit more time. Six months maybe with twins, nine months, a year, but it's going to kick back in. You are going to want it again. And I think it helps with parents of, of small children. Sometimes what can prevent you from being sexual is this desire when you start having sex again to start having sex again like you were having sex before you were parents. That it's not worth having sex if it's 
sex light, if it's just gentle or low stakes, low drama, low complication sex, if it's a little sex, some people like hold back. They want when they start having sex again to have the crazy off the wall sex that they were having before they were so exhausted and so drained and so spent. It can help. And I think it is really helpful when you feel the urge to have sex, not to place too many demands on yourself and not for your partner to place too many demands on you, that you can have a little sex, that you can a little mutual masturbation or a little like giving the partner a hand job, a little rolling around, a little bit of oral. If you keep the expectations in check, you may find yourself wanting to tiptoe back in a little bit sooner. But if what you're expecting from yourself is when you start having sex again, you're going to jump right back into the deep end of the pool. Well, that can be inhibiting. It can be freeing to say when we start having sex again, we're going to have to take baby steps as we get back into this and then enjoy them along with your babies. Hey, Dan, longtime listener from the Southwest. I'm a heterosexual male, and I was calling because my fiance has been looking at becoming a sugar baby for a while. She's gone on a few dates and stuff, and that's totally fine with me. But the part that always bothers me is whenever, you know, they end up asking for sex. And we all know that's basically what they're after. And, like, it just feels really weird and wrong to me. And I've somehow always managed to, like, stop her because we talk about it. But then, like, we've also talked about being polyamorous and, like, trading, like, wife swapping and stuff. And, like, to me, that that seems okay. But there's just something weird that I... It, it, I don't know how to explain it. It just bothers me about this. Maybe it's just because it's transactional and I'm not a part of it. Whereas, like, if we were wife swapping, then, like, we're all kind of involved. And I was wondering, like, how do you, like, help get over this and you know overcome it maybe i'm just like scared because i might lose her even though i know i won't because at the end of the day it's just a transaction there's no emotions and stuff and like we're in the pandemic and you know if someone wants to take her out and get to third or fourth base pay all my bills for the month like why can't i encourage that and just you know make our lives easier so it's not your girlfriend having sex with somebody else that's the hang-up for you you say you would be fine with being in a poly relationship, you say you would be fine with swinging, wife swapping, swinging. And so the idea of your girlfriend getting pleasure from another man, having a positive sexual interaction with another man, that turns you on. It's the addition of the sugar baby thing, of the money that she would basically be doing a kind of sex work. And you wonder like what's in that for you? If it was poly, you would get to have sex with other people too. If it was swinging, you would get to be with the – girlfriend or wife of the other couple that you and your girlfriend were swinging with, there would be some sexual benefit, some upside for you sexually. You would get off too. And what your girlfriend is proposing here is something where it's not about you and you're not going to be getting off. She's going to be having transactional sex with other men in a sugar baby arrangement. Sugar babies are kind of sex workers with Theoretically, and, and most commonly is understood, one client. And he showers her with money and gifts. And in addition to the sex, she provides him with attention. She does emotional labor. He can suspend his disbelief, the sugar daddy, and believe he's having a GFE, they used to call it, a girlfriend experience with this woman who's only there for the money. But not just there for the money. Most people I know who've done, who's had sugar baby arrangements, had them with 
guys they could tolerate, even guys they liked. We've had some calls over the years from people who wound up in relationships with a person they originally had a sugar baby arrangement with, and so they kind of fell in love. Most people I know who do this kind of thing, who are capable of doing this kind of thing, is not going to be with somebody that they could take or leave. Because if you're in a sugar baby arrangement and it's ongoing, that's a lot of FaceTime and a lot of fuck time and a lot of emotional labor. So you can't really do that with somebody who you find repulsive. Maybe that's what threatens you about it. The prospect of this being an ongoing connection, not an open relationship where you occasionally both sleep with other people, not swinging where you get together with a couple and then you go your separate ways, but she's going to be in a relationship with someone else, commodified transactional relationship with someone else. And there is a benefit for you. Your bills will get paid. The rent will get paid. Do you have hangups there about the provider shit that, you know, being less of a man because she needs some other man? to pay her rent. That's something to think about, something to unpack. And it's kind of interesting that you never mentioned how your girlfriend feels about this or feels about your role in this. Is this something that she's given you veto power over? Is this something she's only going to do if you're comfortable with it and isn't going to do if you aren't comfortable with it? Do your feelings matter? Now, when you're with someone, you want your feelings to matter. Even if she ultimately decides that this is something that she has to do to survive and for both of you to survive, she may have to set your feelings aside or your feelings may not carry the day. But at least if you've had a conversation about your feelings, just knowing that she's taking your feelings into consideration, even if ultimately things don't go the way you would like it to go, make you feel heard, can make you feel more comfortable about your girlfriend doing this, becoming a sugar baby, having an ongoing solo sex work transactional relationship with one guy. That's a conversation you need to have with your girlfriend, not your sex advice podcaster. You need to have that conversation with her and see where it goes and look for signs that she's taking your feelings into consideration with the understanding that your girlfriend, a free and autonomous individual can make a decision, make her own decision in the end, that she gets to make her own decision about her body and about what she's going to do with it and about whether she's going to do this kind of thing with it. And then you get to make a decision about your own body. If she decides that she is going to do this and you are comfortable staying in this relationship and having your rent paid in this way, you are free to walk your body out of this relationship. All right, before we get to response calls, before listeners tell me what I could have said and should have said, let's read some tweets. Anna Cronism tweets, the woman on the Savage Lovecast asking if she should be worried that a little bit of pot makes her horny. Anna added the emoji of Obama in a wingback chair, shrugging like, what's the problem here? And I just want to say I agree with Obama. No problem there. Jenny Fuchsia tweets, regarding the woman who wanted to explain her reasoning for ending things, abusers often make their partners feel like they need to present a strong case for anything that might upset their abuser. Somehow breaking up with someone requires a two-thirds majority. I don't think this is about the caller wanting to get the last word, Dan. I think it's a history of being forced to explain. That's a good point, a good point that allows me to reemphasize a point I have made before. You don't have to win an argument to end a relationship. And finally, Pasha tweets, the increasing ubiquity of dicks might be the perfect band name. Uh, I have a feeling that just as the doors of perception eventually became the doors, the increasing ubiquity of dicks would eventually become the dicks, which actually also 
isn't a bad name for a band. Thanks to everyone who posted about the show on your social media this week. And if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the Savage Lovecast hashtag. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, calling with an infidelity survival story. My husband cheated on me about four years into our marriage and about 10 years into our relationship. It was an emotional affair with a coworker that also became physical, and it completely rocked our world. We almost ended it completely, but we got into therapy and really dug into some of the unspoken issues that had been leaving both of us pretty miserable long before the affair. Therapy, finally being honest with each other, and being transparent about what we were going through with our family and friends gave us the tools and support that we needed to push through. Today, we are still married, we've got a couple kids, and we are absolutely better than ever. I really feel like I've had two marriages. The first was pretty awful, and the second is pretty wonderful. They just happen to be with the same guy. Hi, I'm calling in response to episode 747 with the caller who'd asked about her guilt uh, and wondering if she should explain her reasoning for breaking up with the person she'd been dating. Um, From an outside perspective, I can see how it would be confusing about why she might feel guilty, but the caller had identified that she had some past history of emotional abuse in her relationship, so I just wanted to put forth the idea that this guilt might not be based in wanting the last word. For those of us who have experienced emotional abuse, it's often the case that at some point in our lives, uh, we've been taught through relationships that our feelings and intuition and experiences don't matter or that we can't trust them, um, and that standing up to the abusive person or just doing what's right for ourselves is then thrown back at us as blame for hurting the abusive person. So um, this really leads to confusion and intense self-doubt, and um, being entrenched in that kind of cycle is one reason why it can be so difficult to leave abusive relationships. Uh, I just wanted to let the caller know that if this is what's going on, there are others who understand how hard it is to get out of that dynamic. And it's a sign of your strength that you are recognizing the patterns of the past um, and starting to trust your own judgment and feelings uh, and to remove yourself from the situations when your boundaries aren't respected, even if it's uncomfortable for you to do so. Jan's right that you definitely don't owe her an explanation. It sounds like you really did the best thing for yourself, um, and with time, it will feel easier to maintain your boundaries when you're in a relationship uh, without feeling guilty about it. Hey, Dan. I'm calling about the woman who was looking for advice as to how she could meet uh, bisexual men on online dating apps, and I want to tell you that your advice was spot on. About 20 years ago, in uh, Internet 1.0 <laughs> dating website time, I met a woman who put in her ad that she had been in a long-term relationship with a bisexual guy. She was open to dating straight men and bisexual men. And I answered that ad, although at the time I thought I was just a straight guy who liked uh, pegging on occasion. And we are together 20 years later with a family and a very wonderful relationship. And we are now both out as bisexuals. There are a lot more guys out there than she probably expects who would love to see that in a dating profile. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail 
at savagelovecast.com. On March 13th, we're doing an all-new Savage Lovecast live stream with my special guest, writer, and pro-dominatrix, Mistress Matisse. You can send your BDSM questions ahead of time to livestream at savagelovecast.com or just show up for the show and ask your questions during the show, and we will answer as many as we can while we're doing the show. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get tickets now. And there are a handful of Hump 2021 shows left with two shows this weekend and two more special viewing parties. There is an all-nude viewing party on Saturday night and a Hump filmmaker and performer viewing party on Sunday. Head over to humpfilmfest.com to choose a showtime or viewing party that works for you. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Charles M. Blow on Twitter at Charles M. Blow. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hertunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.